Good morning, Todd. Good morning. Oh, that was beautiful. I actually really like that. Let's start doing different like genres every time. Genres. I want the next this, one to be like a beatbox situation. That was the American Idol genre. <laughs> I love it. The Kelly Clarkson. Hell no. Whoa. <laughs> I like it. It's my favorite so far. <laughs> so fun. it works. We are knocking out these podcasts. My man. God. We have just <laughs> booked our schedule within an inch of our lives. Yes. We're becoming more popular. Some people are reaching out more. It's been a great moment. I'm very excited. We are spreading the message of mental health awareness and taking care of ourselves. Self-care is really our only job in this world. So, yeah, I'm very, very thrilled with how this season is, is shaping up. And I think it's invigorating both of us. And it's, yeah. and the common themes in all the different genres of people we're interviewing is just, it's crazy how it all just ties together. It you know, really back is. To gratitude, it's- back to self care, back to awareness, back to trauma recovery. It's just all, I think that's the most fascinating thing to me. What about you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the same like mindfulness and living in the moment and the fact that, you know, you can't change other people or situations, but you have control over yourself and that you are responsible for that and that only. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was just talking about, you know, this week I've been, you know, hitting the gym, taking my athletic greens every day and and detoxing, cutting out alcohol, all the stuff. And it's rejuvenating. And it also makes your mind a little clearer so that you can focus on what is important. I just really like the guest that we have today, you know, even though he is so different from some of the other guests that we've had of as far as, you know, he's definitely not an astrologist or a, a <laughs> or a medium, <laughs> but we heard a lot of the same themes. And so it's just like, maybe that's what everybody needs is for this to all be kind of beaten over their heads until they understand that, you know, we're not, obviously we are not therapists. We are not licensed to fix anybody, but we do want other people to realize and recognize that no matter what situation you're in, that you can and should get help and support for whatever you're going through and that you shouldn't be afraid to reach out about it and that it's cool now. It's a cool thing. So I just think it's impossible for a human to not have had some form of feeling of not being good enough at one point in their life that they have to work through or feeling unwanted or feeling neglected or feeling overlooked or, you know, I agree with you, Laura, therapy has been transformative in my life. And I know it has been in yours too. And I think out of this podcast, if we get just one person to go to a therapist, I know for a fact, we've got more to do that. But I just think that's why we do this, that, you know, we're reminded by the success stories we're hearing from people that listen to the show, that we've inspired people, that we are constantly inspiring people to by the guests we have on and by the advice that's being given to go and help themselves. Yeah. And that's the message of our guests is the most important thing. Like, sure, we love coming on here and, and, and chatting and seeing each other and talking about what's going on. But it's, you know, that's something I want to drive a lot to our listeners is that's what we're, we're trying to get 
other people's stories out there so that if you or someone you love is going through the same thing. And I will also preface this episode with the fact that Todd and I had an echo a little bit in our headphones. So hopefully it is, you know, what ultimately was most important was Ray's message and he did not have an echo. So can you tell us a little bit about him? Yes, I can. So Ray Murphy is a U.S. Marine veteran who served with the 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, STA platoon during Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. After the Marines, Ray attended Illinois State University, where he graduated with a Bachelor in Criminal Justice Sciences. He is the owner and founder of Koru Canine Dog Training and HRD Police Canine, serving as a trusted advisor and trainer to some of the most elite law enforcement canine units across the country. Ray has firsthand knowledge with complex PTSD and the shortfalls of existing treatment options, especially within the VA system. He has personally attended Rhythmia Life Advancement Center in Costa Rica and can speak to the use of ayahuasca ceremonies as an effective treatment for PTSD, as well as the importance of set and setting when choosing a safe treatment option. Knowing what is expected from our men and women in the military and or law enforcement, he felt more needs to be done to actually help them deal with the crushing symptoms of PTSD. He started, so he therefore started Warriors Healing Network to give those in need the opportunity to get back in the fight for their lives. In his spare time, he enjoys heavy metal, shooting, fine dining, horseback riding, and caring for the many animals that reside on his farm. And he lives just outside of Charleston, South Carolina with his wife, Bridget. So without further ado, I give you Ray Murphy. Well, good morning, Ray. Good morning, Ray. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the program. How's your morning so far? So far, so good. We love that. We love to hear it. That's awesome. We're so happy to have you on and just pumped to hear all about all the amazing things you're doing. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and jump right in here. Ray, can you give us some background about yourself and where you're from and sort of what your childhood was like? Oh, okay. We're going way back, right out of the gate. (laughs) When you came out of the womb. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I grew up outside of Chicago. I probably did not have the best family life growing up and didn't realize probably the, the effects it had on me later in life until recently. There was a lot of violence in the household, especially with myself and my father. And that lasted all the way up until I was in high school. You know, when I grew up, you know, I you know, started wrestling and I started playing football and I got bigger and I decided one day it wasn't going to take the violence in the household anymore. And I started fighting back. And obviously that caused some major friction. And I basically left home just prior to graduation, was homeless for about eight months. So, yeah, things started off a little rough for me, for sure. But, you know, after that eight months, I decided to take control of my own life and I actually joined the Marine Corps. And from there, you know, I've been you know, just constantly basically on my own, just pushing the envelope and trying to make myself a better person. So you know, that's, that's where it started. I currently live in Charleston, South Carolina. My wife out here on a farm, you know, just maybe 25 minutes from downtown. But between now and then, there's a whole lot of stuff has passed. So I guess we can break that down into little smaller chunks if you'd like. Exactly. Sure, sure. <laughs> I just have a quick question about your father. Was he always a violent man or was he, you know, did, was alcohol involved or was he just, was he just have bad temper? Honestly, I think it was a generational thing. I, th- I think I remember hearing that, you know, that violence existed in, you know, his family growing up. I don't remember there being an alcohol component to it all, but I just know that, you know, 
I endured it for long enough. And at some point I just decided, you know, I'm not taking this anymore. Well, yeah. if you were a wrestler, I mean, I'm <laughs> sure you were pretty strong, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, when you got violence on violence, you know, that doesn't make for a good household either. Yeah. Right. So at all. this came to a head one day and, you know, I decided I wasn't dealing with that shit anymore. And I just decided to move on and take control of my own life. Yeah. Well, I think that was a very brave and and, brave, and good move. Say, yeah. And speaking of brave, I'd like to talk a little bit about your military background. So, you know, obviously you decided to join, but what kind of made you join the Marines in particular? And how did that experience shape you? Well, I mean, I've always wanted to challenge, you know, and at the time I always heard, you know, the Marines were kind of the, the toughest thing to get into or whatever, you know, so I decided to go that route. It wasn't a lifelong dream. You know, it was definitely a necessity at the time, you know, to get out of my current situation. So, you know, I didn't grow up dreaming of you know, becoming a Marine or serving my country or anything like that. It just happened. But when I did get in, you know, it did teach me a whole lot of stuff as far as self-reliance and confidence and things like that. And, you know, I didn't get the neat gene out of it. You know, my wife tells me that all the time. You know, I don't oh. <laughs> square corners my bed <laughs> in the morning. But I did get the on-time gene. You know, I will always be on time, if not early. So Yeah, I don't know if everybody has the pleasure of getting the neat gene. I know that my ex, <laughs> who was in the Army, did, did was not notorious for that at all. The equipment everywhere all the time. So... Regardless, Laura and I, uh, you know, we thank you for your service. The military, I've always had so much respect for everyone in the military. I think I'm the only person in my family who didn't go into the military, but I do have so much respect for you guys. And I just want to like break that down for a second. When you got up every morning, you have to make your bed. You have to stand at attention. Like what, break down the morning routine for us. Oh, for, for boot camp? Or yeah. Just well, no, just, no, no, not boot camp, Nick, normal. <laughs> Well, it really depends. I, I was in an infantry unit, so, I mean, basically, we did a whole lot of training, and you go to the field when you're not deployed somewhere, so you're, you're learning your craft, which is war. You know, we're basically training to fight a war. I spend most of my time in with the scout sniper platoon, so I always wanted to get into the kind of the elite units within Marine Corps. You know, had this come later on in life, and I had a little more maturity, I'm sure I would have gone that route and probably stayed in the Marine or the military in some capacity. I love seeing what special forces and SEALs and, you know, the Marine recon units have done, you know, and I think that's a calling that would have been made sense to me later on in life with a little more maturity. I just didn't know any better at the time. So, but I also wanted to be part of the fight. You know, I didn't want to be a supportive unit or anything like that. You know, I think I've been in a fighter my entire life and it's just something that naturally came to me. So, yeah. Well, and I can kind of tell that, you know, kind of from what you continue to do afterwards, and, and we'll get more into that, but as far as even training dogs that are military and with police force and, and all that, that you're you're still very passionate about helping out with, you know, serving, whether it's you directly or through the dogs that you train. But you also have spent a good amount of time as a skydiver and a base jumper, so what drew you to that and why did you, have you stopped or, or did you, why did you stop if you did? Well, I mean, I've always been inclined to do adventurous things and that still hasn't gone away. You know, I'm always kind of pushing the envelope. It's kind of hard to come back from hitting that apex of adrenaline sports, which would be base jumping. You know, believe it or not, I got into base jumping because I got bored of skydiving. Oh, wow. So that, that should tell you Wow. <laughs> But, you know, when you got 20 plus years under your belt, you know, I've been all over the world base jumping and skydiving and been part of world record attempts and and all sorts of things like that. It comes at a price. I mean, you're playing big boy games and those have big boy rules and consequences, meaning, 
you know, I think I lost close to, I had to sit down and think about this one day and I'm still not even positive on the count, but I think I've lost a total of around 33 to four people in my life just gone off this planet due to that sport and being around it. Those sports, you know, that is a pretty high body count for anyone. I mean, you talk to the soldiers coming back from war and don't even experience losing that many people. At some point when it becomes the norm, you got to question, you know, well, why is this normal? This isn't normal, you know, and if it is, you got a problem. And this is what, you know, stuff I've recognized later in life, you know, when I got diagnosed with complex PTSD, it's not necessarily a single traumatic event. It's like, boom, you've got PTSD. It's sometimes a slow erosion of your nervous system of experiencing trauma after trauma. I think they call it trauma stacking. You know, it's just like one thing after another. And then one day you just wake up, you just don't feel right, or you just don't bounce back the same. And I think that's how it got me. And I think this is how PTSD actually creeps up on people. They don't even realize it, just think they're depressed or whatever the deal is. But I think you got to really take some inventory of what you've been through as a human. And everyone's got a different threshold for that. You know what I mean? Right. Can you expand on that a little bit for like, so it was the trauma stacking. That's why you were diagnosed with CPTSD or like, how did you eventually, why did you come to that? Well, I mean, first of all, I have experienced some horrific stuff within those 34 fatalities. In fact, one specifically, I actually, I almost died trying to save somebody who was knocked out in free fall. So, I mean, I was right there when this happened. It was during a world record attempt in um, Chicago for a large formation attempt. And one of our team captains got knocked out in free fall on a chaotic break off. And I chased her as far as I could. I saw ground coming up off my peripheral vision is how close I got to joining her. And I basically sat out in this field, you know, wondering if anybody saw what I just had saw, why, you know, almost 300 other people flew back to the drop zone. So this is the type of stuff that I saw within those 34 fatalities. And a lot of, some of them are closer friends, some not as close, but believe it or not, the straw that broke the camel's back was I lost a dog in 2018. Unexpectedly, my dog Nero he was my rider die dog as a German shepherd. You know, I competed with him doing you know, protection sports and things like that. Died of a colonic torsion, which is like bloat, just a little bit further down the intestinal tract. And when I lost him, I, I just came apart. I mean, I everything felt different. I felt different. The world I saw was different. I just, you know, it, it's crazy that you go through that much carnage and then you lose a dog. And then that's really what did it. So, yeah. Just not the normal presentation of PTSD, if there's such a thing, but that's how I got it. <laughs> yeah. And, but I think also, I mean, you kind of, you train these dogs and I, I can imagine that's like, was this your personal dog or was it a dog you're working with? Yeah, no, he was a personal dog. Okay. So <laughs> she was a puppy. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm very sorry for your loss with that as well. But you no, know, I guess it did in a way push you to seek help after that. So You've said that conventional treatments didn't really work for you. So what exactly did you try and why do you feel like it didn't really work for you personally? So I tried, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, I did EMDR, multiple different therapists, because I know people say you got to shop therapists. You know, I kept coming across all these therapists that really didn't know. You know, at one point I got really frustrated, you know, doing these EMDR sessions. And I'm just like, I asked her, I said, well, have you treated somebody with PTSD? And have you ever seen them, quote, heal? And if so, what does that look like? And she couldn't answer my question. 
So right there, I'm like, well, what am I doing? Why are we doing this? You know, I mean, we're not getting anywhere. You know, I was hell bent on not going down the antidepressant route. You know, I've seen what that's done to people. So I couldn't find anything that actually worked till I circled back to trying, thinking about trying a psychedelic route. I kept hearing that pop up. You know, it's gotten a lot of airtime through Joe Rogan and some other, other avenues. But, you know, I think my first experience was trying ketamine therapy. And right away, you know, there was something going on there, right? I mean, I felt definitely some relief, but not enough to say that it was making a major dent in my life. And this is stuff that I found out later on. There's levels to this game. Ray, when you were doing the ketamine, was it guided? Did you have a therapist working with you while you were on the K? Yes. And I did feel some relief, but it was short-lived. And this is stuff, again, I can circle back to this, but there's levels to it. And what I mean by that is if you've got a a deep blockage further upstream, you can't treat it with a lower level treatment. So what needs to be done is you got to do the nuclear option, dislodge that thing upstream, and then all these supporting therapies and modalities will probably work for you, including things like ketamine or microdosing or, or even just even EMDR in the talk therapy might be more beneficial after you've dislodged the problem that's further upstream. And that's hard to get at without some degree of discomfort and willingness to go deep. And, you know, kind of the top tiers of those things you keep hearing are going to be ayahuasca and ibogaine. Those are kind of the two ones that you hear in that realm. And they tend not to be very gentle at all, but they are highly effective at dropping ego and allowing whatever trauma you got in there to come out. I mean, whatever's in there, you're not going to be able to keep it from being addressed. It's just the medicine is going to do what it's going to do. Right. And they say that you can actually see because they now have machines and technology that you can actually see the trauma in the brain. They can actually see where the trauma is caused. And when you do these things like ayahuasca or ketamine drips, they say that it actually shrinks the size of the trauma, like physically shrink, shrinks the size of the trauma so that you can actually see that someone is healing. But for people that don't know what ayahuasca ceremonies are, can you sort of break that down, what those are, what they're like, and how do you feel like it's helped you in the long haul? Sure. Well, I mean, where I went, first off, I was terrified of the idea, right? I mean, going down to a foreign country somewhere and you know, going to the stuff is made by indigenous peoples in the Amazon regions. So anywhere down South America, you you typically find this stuff. That being said, you know, I wanted some degree of comfort and sense of security. You know, part of PTSD is, is the hypervigilance, right? The last thing I need is be worried about my safety or a language barrier or something like that. So I was searching places that are a little more secure, a little more kind of gentle introduction to that. And I found it in this place called Rhythmia in Costa Rica. They're known for their kind of what they do. They kind of cater to, I guess, that Western audience. They have medical staff and all that type of stuff. But when I went down there, two things were kind of turned me off to the whole thing. Number one was the group aspect. I didn't want to air out all my crap in front of a bunch of strangers and stuff like that. And turns out that was actually a huge part of my healing. When you hear other people's experiences and the traumas they've gone through and things like that, I mean, there are people from all walks of life down there. A lot of women with sexual abuse type things and just you name it. I mean, people have gone through some horrific stuff and it's really humbling to hear other people's stuff. It just, you know, I think in the beginning when everyone's got PTSD, they try to measure their traumas with other people. But when you realize that everyone's suffering in some way, some other, you know, some other cause, then 
it just makes you just kind of accept that we're all in this together. You know, we're going to work through this whole thing. So what it became is this, you're going through this hard experience with a group of people and you become this little team, I guess, within this healing bubble. The other thing I did not really take into consideration is the, I guess, the tradition behind it all. When you've got these shamans up there blessing this medicine and doing these ikoros, which are like these chants that are supposed to draw out the effects of the medicine, I mean, this stuff makes your hair and your arms stand up. I mean, these people are legit. You feel that energy and that power. And I don't have a religious bone in my body, but spiritually, I can feel that presence of something, right? Some kind of higher something going on. And that alone, I mean, holy cow that energy is something that's palpable, you know, and when, especially when you get in an environment like that. But yeah, I mean, that's, those are the two kind of the big factors I really didn't think about when I went down there. I've been there twice. And the first time, you know, you're just kind of deer in the headlights until <laughs> you figure out how to navigate this stuff, which is basically you just let go. Both times are a week. They offer week-long retreats and, you know, been there for a week at a time. And in those, that week you do four ceremonies. So they're usually in the evening and then they, they go almost to the you know early hours of the next morning. The last one goes all night long. Personally, how did it like affect you? Like, how did you feel afterwards that made you realize like this is actually helping me and change me? Yeah. I mean, the fourth ceremony on my first time I was there, I felt lighter. I mean, light, like somebody just pulled like a, a huge weight off my back and I instantly felt different. I'm literally walking around this place smiling. You know, I don't smile like that. That's just not <laughs> who I am. I mean, I think I cried more in a week than I did in the past 30 years. So that release was insane. And just to come home and have that lingering effect and then starting to look at the world differently and put thought patterns differently. And you know what? I actually started to welcome and be grateful for the traumatic experience I've gone through. Every you know, working with my integration coach, you know, she basically put this to me one time. She said, think of the most horrific things you've gone through in life. Now also think about what positive has come out of each of those experiences. So right out of the gate, you're like, there's no way in hell I'm getting anything positive that came out of this, this, and this. And then you, know, you think about it for a minute and you're like, well, yeah, I mean, I either learned something or I gained something or whatever the deal was. I mean, there was something to be grateful for, for those horrific experiences. And you know what? They shaped who I am today. They got me to where I am today. And they also got me to the point that I'm giving back and I'm helping people. You know, I want to help people not flounder around and try to figure out, reinvent the wheel. You know, there are solutions out there. You just have to look out of the box and understand that a lot of our current medical system is a conflict of interest. They don't, truly don't want you to heal, right? It's sick care and they just want to manage it. Ooh. I think that's a very good Ooh. point. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Ray. Yeah. When we're talking the VA, it's even worse. I mean, the VA, I mean, you keep hearing this 22 a day thing with the numbers, probably way higher than that. I personally know at least three combat veterans that were prescribed an antidepressant, I think like Xanax or something like that, with undiagnosed TBIs, which is a traumatic brain injury, which has very similar symptoms and have almost instant uncharacteristic suicidal thoughts. And all three of them almost ate a gun because of it. So I know there's probably some great people within the VA system trying to do their best, but the system itself is overrun. It's not scaled. 
to deal with, you know, 20 years of war and the people that are stuck in that system, they don't have those resources. And they're getting closer to legalizing things like, was it uh, MDMA and psilocybin and things like that through MAP studies and stuff like that that have gone through, I think they've completed their phase three trials. But if they legalize all those treatments tomorrow, you're going to have a backlog of 100,000 people trying to get in these programs. And then how are you going to find qualified people to do the implementation and hold ceremony? Because a big part of healing within psychedelics is the set and setting, meaning who's administering it and what's the setting? You know, sitting in a hospital bed or, you know, a clinical environment is not going to be the same as a, an environment that was set up specifically for you to feel comfortable and warm and, and basically just deal with the medicine, right? Well, over here, we're not that's sort of not our focus is it? it's like you just said it's it's more of like let's see, oh you're you're sick let's give you a drug it sort of like minimizes the symptoms versus treating the root of it so it would be interesting to see what would actually happen to our veterans if we took a more holistic approach to their healing and went sort of this route but you're right if you had to go all the way over there to, <laughs> for a shaman to bless you and heal you and they're trained in all of that there's not a whole lot of those people in the world that are trained in that so you have all these guys or men and women that have served that have seen traumatic things, but how are they all going to get the treatment? Even if they did, like you said, even if they did legalize it, how would we do it? But you can at least start, you can at least start and heal some people, you know, and then they can heal. Yeah. And I guess that leads me to my next question is, you know, why did you create the Warriors Healing Network, which is the 501c3 that you started? And what is y'all's mission? Yeah. When I, well, I mean, first, our mission is we're sending combat veterans and police officers with PTSD, especially ones who've tried kind of everything else under the sun and, and nothing's worked for them, down to Costa Rica to do ayahuasca ceremonies and get prep work prior and do integration work on, on return. We want to make this. These things aren't cheap, and we want to make sure cost isn't a barrier for them to go. You know, approximately each one of our treatment grants is roughly $10,000, you know, depending on travel costs and things like that. But. I think we owe them that. I mean, so many of these brave men and women have you know, given everything, you know, and it's not just them. When they get PTSD, that affects everyone around them. You know, that ripple effect, you've got ruined families and relationships and all these other things that, that come along with those diagnoses and that those behaviors that they're suffering all bound, you know, if we can't get to the root of this stuff. And we've spent so much money, you know, creating you know, these warriors, you know, especially, you know, think about a tier one operator out there, you know, they've spent millions of dollars on these guys to become these amazing warriors and amazing at their craft, but they can't spend any of that same budget to bring them back down and it reintegrate them properly. You know, I know there's attempts being made, but it's not enough. You know, it just really isn't. And then the police, you know, they're probably the least looked after group who seem probably the most trauma out of anyone. You know, they're poorly paid, poorly supported, and very rarely applauded for anything good they do. You know, all it takes is one bad incident across the country and the entire profession is demonized. And you know what I mean? I'm these, I have a company training police canine units because the vast majority of units out there don't have that quality training that would actually prepare them for the chaos and violence that they're going to see on the street. In theory, my company shouldn't exist. You know, that should be something that just given to them, given that's their profession, but that's just not how it works. You know, I mean, they have to do fundraisers and things like that to 
fund these departments. So when he, everyone's complaining about the police, it's like, okay, well, you really want that professional police department? How much are you willing to pay for that? And these defund movements are so off the base. Really, it should be hyperfund. You know, only attract the top tier. Give them all the medical and physical, you know, support behind them to help them navigate this tough job. And then give them actual training and the tools they need to be successful. And you'd minimize anything that would be negative in that light. So if you think about these men and women that are in these professions, I mean, they've got kind of the whole world stacked against them, including the media and the public perception and things like that. And it's just, that's a tough job. You know, I, I wouldn't do it. I support them through my training and through my company, but, you know, I, I would never do that profession just for that reason alone. Yeah. It just kind of seems like the whole system itself is, is very short-sighted. It's built to do one thing and not go beyond that and support people in general once they have to go back into society or they've dealt with, with the trauma. So, you know, do you basically think that I know that at a certain point ayahuasca might be necessary, but do you feel like that what other kind of improvements that could be done within the veteran community to make that a better situation? Well, first off, I just want to be perfectly clear. I mean, just drinking a cup of ayahuasca is not going to fix all your worldly problems. I mean, what has to happen is you have to understand that's one tool, you know, in everything that has, you have to be ready to make some change in your life, positive change. It means adopting, you know, a healthier lifestyle, some wellness practices, and actually do some integration work to make sense of these psychedelic journeys. That has to be part of it. So it's kind of a whole big picture. It's not just taking a particular psychedelic and all of a sudden you're going to feel better. It's not how it works. That being said, the community as a whole, you know, I mean, outside of that, you know, anytime there's a traumatic event, there needs to be some kind of a way to actually support these guys through it, whether it's immediate EMDR type stuff or whatever, just to make sure that this stuff doesn't become so normalized that you're just a curing. You're basically creating yourself your own complex PTSD diagnosis that'll unravel some point down the road. That being said, the problem with that is the stigma, right? I mean, if you admit that you have some kind of problem or mental thing going on on the job, they'll take you off the street or take you out of your units and you're deemed unusable. Yeah, especially in the operator community within the military. I mean, if you start seeking that psychological help or whatever, you know, sometimes, you know, I mean, the, the big stigma is, yeah, it's a sign of weakness, right? You're in this alpha group of people that, first of all, fear doesn't really have a good place within the mission itself. I mean, because it's contagious. You have to maintain calm, professional, and all that type of stuff. But at some point, things are going to rattle you. You're going to get bothered by some stuff. And, you you know, the culture isn't open to kind of that warm and fuzzy, I guess, community. That being said, if somebody does want to get some help, it should not be an immediate kind of ticket out of the job that they want to do. In fact, they should be doing everything under their power to kind of figure out what they could do to get them back in it. Yeah, I guess kind of back to your Warriors Healing Network mission, though, you ultimately decided to do to go the ayahuasca route. And so far, you sent two veterans to receive the treatment at the Rhythmia Life Advancement Center in Costa Rica. How did that turn out? And would you say it was a success for them? Absolutely. I mean, they, they both came back and said, this is game changing. One of them came back and even told me that, you know, had this not turned things around, you know, he actually had a plan to commit suicide. 
so that I mean to hear that you know that fuels my fire I mean right there I mean to not know that it was that close to the end for this particular person and to know that you know my organization helped save him basically that's a lot to take in right I mean that's but I know we're on the right path here and I know there's thousands of other people in that same boat just as frustrated they're doing whatever stuff that you know, they're, they're told to do uh, through the standard modalities and they're not getting anywhere. Like every time you try something, you know, it's hard enough to just get them to try to get their help for themselves. But when they try something, it doesn't work out. Like people are like, oh, you got to shop for counselors. Well, how many times are you going to do that? How many times you have spent four or five sessions with a counselor and gotten nowhere? You know, and you're pissed off, right? You're even more angry than you were when you started, you know, because nothing's working. And then you don't know if it's you or what the story is, and then you hear these other things like EMDR, great. It's doing all these amazing things. Well, it didn't do a damn thing for me. And you know what? And I did, and gave a heavy dose of trying. But that being said, it took a while for me to understand that I had a much bigger problem than EMDR would have been able to deal with. Could have EMDR helped me after I've done kind of a deeper journey or dislodged some of the trauma that was deep-seated in there? Probably. And this is why I'm saying there's kind of levels to this game. And you, you got to figure out what works. Every person is going to be different. But I can tell you, people who've got the deep-seated, really gnarly trauma, I mean, they've got to, you're probably going to have to go the uncomfortable route first. And I, I would suggest to anyone is the tr that, that can healthily do this. I mean, there's obviously some medical precautions that need to be taken. But, you know, the psychedelics are the most promising avenue for treatment for any kind of PTSD that I'm seeing out there today. Well, Ray, what is the process that each person goes through before, during, and after treatment? Yeah. Well, first off, they have to be medically screened. I mean, there are certain conditions that will not allow them to take the medicine safely. I mean, if they're schizophrenic or, or if they're actively taking antidepressants that they can't safely come off of, they also have to be able to come off alcohol and things like that. I mean, safely. That's not, they're not set up to be detox centers. I don't personally have experience with Ibogaine. I know there's some different different, I guess, requirements for those things. But that's generally geared to people a little bit more in the addiction side of things, but it could also work for PTSD. I'm just, I can only really speak to the ayahuasca side of things. And they really just want to make sure that your body is cleaned out as much as humanly possible before you go down there. In fact, you do what's called dieta. So you actually cut out a lot of foods and activities before you go down there. So it just helps the medicine not have to combat, you know, other things within your body. And it just does its job. And while they're there, obviously, they don't have access to all of that, but they go through kind of a similar thing that you did of, you know, you have this group kind of aspect, you have a lot of people supporting you. And you want to go down there with some kind of thought out intentions. You really go into these ceremonies with an intention, you know, what do I want to get out of the ceremony? Those are really important. So you're not just doing it just to do it. You're doing it with some kind of intention that you want to see a positive outcome on the other end. You know, and you do have to do some prep work down there. It's good to do things like understanding breath work and stuff like that, because when things get uncomfortable or scary with under any psychedelic, the answer is always breathe. Right. I mean, it, when people start freaking out or whatever, it's just breathe. Like, that's really all it is. You know, it's just what's coming is going. You know, so if it's uncomfortable, they tell you to go to the dark. You know, if you got your, you know, fluffy picture over here with rainbows and unicorns and you got some dark cloud over here, you go go to the dark cloud because you're doing work. I mean, you're not there for vacation, right? Right. It's not for the faint of heart. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but people can, you know, get sick while it's going on. They can throw up. They can because they say it's like purging all the negativity. It's purging all the trauma out of out of your body. And so you can't have a physical 
response to that. Is that correct? Absolutely. Unfortunately, that is a side effect of that stuff. And and you just need to be willing to understand that, you know, you're going to be uncomfortable for a couple of days. But you know what? If you've got a lot of trauma in your life, I bet you've been more uncomfortable prior to that. Right. I mean, and then how long do you want this to continue? Do you want it to end? You know, can you take four days of being really uncomfortable or or a lifetime of this? Right. So, I mean, it's really it comes down to your mindset. I mean, you have to go down there willing to make a change and understand what you're doing this for a purpose. And I think that's the important part of that mindset before you even step into the arena of doing any kind of psychedelic. Did you ever go there with the intention of healing one thing and through the process, you actually ended up healing multiple traumas that you didn't even know maybe were there? Well, for me specifically, what happened was, I think the first time I was down there, I was able to process all the death. I even lost another base jumping friend maybe a month before I went that just kind of solidified it for me. And he, this guy was like somebody I really looked up to and probably one of the safest guys out there and such a positive force out there. And he had an accident and died. So that told me right there that, you know, I'm doing the right thing. Like, you know, the Jimmy would have told me, like, you need to go take care of yourself, buddy. He wouldn't want me crying over him or any kind of crap like that. He said, just go make yourself happy. And that helped push it through. So that first time I went down there, this is where I learned to kind of appreciate every single person I did lose in my life for the time that I had with them, including my dog. I looked at it differently. Instead of me losing him, I was grateful that I had him in my life and I had this amazing creature. And, you know, I, I got to live with him for five years. So I dealt with all that stuff kind of that first go around. What I didn't really dive into or think about is, you know, my childhood trauma stuff. And some of it was pretty terrible. And I was just blew it off because really on a day to day basis, that didn't really bother me. I don't really think about it. And a lot of people are like, oh, I had a terrible childhood. And you know what? I did, but I don't really think about or care about it. This last time I went there, I realized there was a lot more going on than that. <laughs> And I keep hearing this from multiple sources, you know, I talk about this stuff is that any real trauma between, you know, zero to seven years old, that sets you up to be able to be fairly susceptible to traumas later in life. You know, I think when I was seven, you know, my dad broke my foot, like throwing me down and I had a broken foot. And I remember I had to lie to the hospital people about Uh what happened saying, you know, I fell or something, something ridiculous like that. I just kind of think through this, but it's not something I think about on a daily basis. But when I was down there, they were defining what an empath was, you know, somebody who basically takes on other people's traumas and, you know, to their own detriment to some degree. And it stems typically from those childhood traumas. So I'm like, then the light bulb clicked off. I'm like, oh crap. I mean, this is kind of the root. This is the root of the root. Right. And that I probably should have been looking into that first time I went down there, but it took me a while to circle back to it and finally get to it. And I think the medicine does this for you because it gives you what you need, not necessarily what you want. And at the time I went there the first time I needed some immediate reconciliation of all the trauma and loss. So, and again, I don't know how this stuff works. It is, you know what I mean? It's when I, you got to consider your audience when you're talking about psychedelics anyway, if I told them everything I saw under the, um, any kind of psychedelic, they're like, you're, you're nuts, right? Wow. <laughs> you know, I never took this stuff ever in my <laughs> life. You know, maybe I smoked pot a few times in high school and drank, but I was never like the drug guy, you know, or even the club drugs or any of that crap. And I never even considered it until I got PTSD. So, 
Well, I don't think anybody can really say you're nuts for what you see on psychedelics because, you know, that's really kind of beyond your control <laughs> at that point. And it's administered for that purpose. So it, it does seem to really resonate because we've talked to several people who, you know, about how to deal with these traumas and be kind of almost delicate with it. Like if you go right to the center of it at the beginning, it's not going to work. You almost like overwhelm your system and you don't want, like you can't handle it all at once. And that's why you end up developing PTSD and all of these things be, to repress it almost because your brain can't handle it. So it's got to kind of unfold over time. Yeah. And then you go down these rabbit holes of, if you take, you zoom back, you're like, what the hell are we doing here? Like as humans, you start going on those rabbit holes. You're like, well, <laughs> you know, in this moment in time, I'm experiencing and feeling this, but there's how many billion people in the world who are having a different experience at this moment in time. And you see how things ebb and flow throughout, you know, human existence, you know, and especially this day and age, there's so much crap going on in the world. It's just, if you, that's one thing that was definitely stuck in before I went and did these treatments is, you know, every gnarly thing that came down the pipe, you know, whether it's World War Three and Ukraine and, you know, race wars or whatever is going, all this terrible stuff that's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you think about it, I can only control what's in front of me. And what I wasn't doing is I'm imagining these disaster scenarios coming up and not living in the moment. And I think living in the moment is the hardest thing that you kind of have to learn to do is like, I can't control everything around that's happening around the world, but right in front of me, I can, you know, this is what I'm experiencing right now. This is what I could actually make a difference doing. Even with, you know, Warriors Healing Network, you know, I can't help everybody. I wish I could, but I'm going to help my, do my damnedest for the ones that I, I can touch. What is a treatment grant and how can someone donate to your cause? Well, warriorshealingnetwork.org is our website. We have donation links there. Our treatment grants are roughly 10 grand, like I mentioned before, because we cover all the you know, costs that they can't cover. Uh, whether that's travel, whatever. We have an integration coach on our board. We'll do the prep work prior. So we'll help kind of get them geared up on what to expect, teach them how to control the breathing a little bit and stuff like that. We'll cover the week-long retreats. And then we'll do integration sessions when they come home. So integration sessions are kind of like, I guess you can put it like counseling, but not counseling, meaning you're doing it with somebody who has experience with psychedelics. So if you shake up a snow globe, Thing about that is what your brain has happened to your brain, what it's, it's breaking up all these negative, looping negative thought patterns in your head, but they have to come to rest at some other point in your brain. And that's what integration work does for you. You basically change the way you think about things, you know, on a daily basis, whether negative thoughts or whatever, and find ways to cope and, and deal with it. But again, we're not hiding from negativity or not hiding from having a bad day. It's how you choose to react to it. And making those different choices is what ultimately makes you feel better. We are finally getting on our, you know, we've been around for since late May of last year. So not even a full year. We're kind of having our second fundraiser that we've ever had. This is kind of our big one in May, two of them. We have a former Navy SEAL and author of Man in the Arena, Eddie Gallagher, and his wife, Andrea. And you might have heard of them from all the crazy stuff that went on with them. In, I think it was 2018, they're all over the news when he was wrongfully accused of killing an injured ISIS fighter on the battlefield. He was cleared of all these charges, and they were all unfounded anyway. 
he's a great human being. They've got their own charity to help other veterans and police that have been jammed up by the system, unrightfully so, called the Pipe Hitter Foundation. So they're just good people, and they're coming up to help us with a couple events in May. First one is May 5th at the Shellmore in Mount Pleasant. We're doing a dinner to end veteran and police suicide. So really small, intimate dinner. Come meet Eddie and Andrea, and we're going to have a bunch of cool people there. And then on Saturday the 6th at my buddy's private range, about 35 minutes from Charleston, we're doing an operator for a day shooting event. So basically Eddie's going to be teaching people how to kind of shoot and move and, you know, do all the things that he learned in the SEAL team. So that's a very rare experience for civilians to come out there and learn for somebody of that caliber, you know, how to shoot properly, you know, using an AR and pistol and stuff like that. And both of them, all the proceeds are going to help kind of replenish our accounts here so we can get some more people down there. And we, like I said, we just got on our feet within the past year. So, and we just got on the GuideStar, you know, candid sites. So we're, we're vetted and all that stuff. We've shown financials to show that we're legit. And we're just going to be looking for larger donors and things like that to help fund this ongoing mission because there's thousands of people that need this help. You know, and this is just how it is. We're just looking for people to help us with our mission, whether it's locally or nationally or whatever. Anyone who wants to get involved and just reach out to us, we, we could use it. That's awesome. And I think it's particularly important to those that are in our neck of the woods in Charleston to look into all that. Go to your, you know, I'll put all the links in the show notes for your Instagram, for all of these things so that people know when they're going on and how they can support. I thought that the, when you mentioned it to me or like a few weeks ago about the shooting range, I was like, oh, I could do that. And then I saw the requirements and I was like, just kidding. I don't have all that. But I think it's important for people to know that they can still donate even if they can't, you know, participate in these events, correct? Yes. And, you know, this is scalable to anybody, any real skill level, as long as you have kind of your own rifle or pistol or stuff like that, you know, we're not training people to be a Navy SEAL. We're just showing them what, you know, how the type of training that they would receive in a small little nutshell. So we would take anybody, any experience level. We've got a lot of highly experienced people there to to ensure the safety of everyone. And, and we're just going to move like that. It's not reserved to the, the elite gunfighters of the world. Uh, so if you wanted to come out, we can make sure you had a good time. Well, that's awesome. I mean, it all sounds, you know, it's all going to an amazing cause. Clearly, this is something that's you know, I, I actually did not know that you just started a year ago. And so the fact that, you know, I think you had said to me, well, we've only sent two people down. It's like, well, you know, this is an expensive process. So, you know, it takes a, a good amount. Like, I think you said it was like about $10,000 per. Yeah, that's hard to come up with, you know, with getting $10 donations and $20 donations here and there, which is great. But, you know, we're going to have to step up our game to try to, you know, ramp up our fundraising activities. I mean, the good thing about having Eddie up here is he's a staunch supporter of this type of stuff because he's actually gone through the treatments himself. I think he went through Ibogaine treatments through a different organization down in Mexico, and that was transformative for him too. So, I mean, you can see the value in this stuff, and there's more and more people out there. Well, there are only a couple other charities in this space. Most of them are directed towards kind of tier one operators. I think the one's called Bet Solutions. They really cater towards kind of the SEAL community or the you know, the tier one operators out there. There's another one called Heroic Hearts. And then us, we've opened ours a little bit broader just to, I guess, cast the net wider to uh -huh. other people and then also include 
police officers. I think we're one of the few or the only one that offers it. You know, we've yet to send anyone down yet. Obviously, it's a little bit of a sticky thing because of the legality of the substance of themselves. But that being said, everything we do is in confidence. So I'm more interested in saving lives than anything else. Yeah, I think that that's something that is kind of overlooked as well, that people don't really realize that when you're still in service, it's really hard to get treatment because of the fear that you'll lose your livelihood, not to mention the stigma of it all. So, you know, this is a, a fantastic first step, I think, in getting those that are deeply affected by all of this. And hopefully Ray, you're talking, sorry, Laura, he's talking about a movement. Yeah. Like you're talking about a full movement. Here. Yeah. And I think it's going to be needed for years to come. Like I said, you know, they, okay, all these psychedelic treatments tomorrow, how are they going to implement it? You know, for the guy that needs it now, you know, that's not going to help, you know, if this stuff's legalized or becomes mainstream in five to 10 years, which is going to probably take that long, you know, with the government, probably, it's going to probably take even longer and they'll probably screw it up. <laughs> that being said, <laughs> that being said, I mean, yeah, there's people that need this stuff now, you know what I mean? And just, let's just stop screwing around and stop doing 22 pushups on TikTok and let's actually do something. You know, nobody's doing anything. A lot of people say they support veterans and police and throw a thin blue line sticker on their car. But what are you doing to help, actually help? And I think there's very few people out there that are actually doing things, organizations that will actually save their life. So I think that's the approach I'm taking. I've always been, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And the board I have assembled and the people we have behind us. And I just want to grow this thing just so it can kind of just take legs and go. Right? I just want more people to be able to get this help because I remember that feeling, you know, for about the five year period after I lost my dog till I discovered psychedelics as a viable option. You know, it was miserable. Right. I mean, you just you don't think there's an ever end in sight to this stuff. You, you don't feel like the person used to be. Everything's negative. Everybody's a threat. And you're constantly on edge and that's not the way to live. And it affects everybody around you and your ability to love and care and, and be that person people want to be around. And I think this is why, you know, I think we reach out to family members and like, listen, if you want to sponsor a specific person, we can make that happen too. Right. As long as they meet the requirements and they're willing to do this, do the work, we can make it happen. And you can know the person that you're sending, not just sending it off to an organization you know, to help in general, right? So it's a little more targeted. So we've got both options available. We just need to get to a point that we can kind of do this on a regular basis and I would feel pretty satisfied. Yeah, and that's why I didn't mean to, to downplay it by saying it was a first step. I guess it just means that this is a step towards actually doing something as opposed to just numbing people or, you know, just like you said, just saying, you know, giving a dollar here, a dollar that for what? Like exactly. We don't even know what it's really going towards, but here, you know, exactly what it's going towards. You can help somebody directly if that's how you choose to do it. And, you know, I just think overall you're doing amazing things. So we just like, can't thank you enough for that as a whole and for coming on here to talk about it. All that being said, before we let you go, we do have a tradition on this show. And it is the question of the day because we cover a lot of heavy stuff on here. So we like to leave it on a bit of a positive note, even though all of this is positive, no matter what. And that I can, I just so much can commend you for doing all that. But right now, 
Would you rather be fluent in every language or a master of every musical instrument? I'm going to have to say musical instrument because I'm a metalhead. I go to every metal concert. Oh, yeah. Really? I, yeah, I just saw Jerry Cantrell here in uh, Charleston. It was, that was great because I've seen him since I was, a, you know, Blah Palooza days back in the day, right, with Alice in Chains. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, wow. I'm a big uh, metalhead, so I'd probably be doing some kind of heavy metal music. With all the <laughs> instruments. <laughs> yeah. With every instrument at once. A one-man metal Ray band. Murphy on tour. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's going to come see that, but whatever. You could be a great fundraiser, you know? You could just, yeah. <laughs> all proceeds go to <laughs> Warrior Healing Network. Well, just again, can't thank you enough for coming on. And, you know, we don't take up any more of your time, but everybody just go check out all the links that we have in the show notes. Check out the website and go to the events because, you know, you're saving lives. And it's something that really deeply needs to be addressed in America right now, because even in light of recent events and long-term events of all these shootings and everything going on, there's a lot of mental distress that's happening. And, you know, we've really got to get to the root of it. We can't just keep treating parts of it. So again, thank you so much, Ray. And we hope you have Thanks, Ray. a wonderful Ray. rest thank of your Thank you both. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bye. 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 Okay, so what'd you think? I just think that he's like, he is the, doing the Lord's work. I mean, he is just, it is such a, a cause too that's like near and dear to my heart, just spending time in the military. I mean, I was not serving, but I was married to a service member and to see kind of how, I won't say bad, they're trying to do better, but that how underserved they are as far as getting help even for the most basic things, even for just anxiety, depression. I mean, there was, when we were being sent over to Germany, we all had to get these screenings done so that if you had some kind of condition, like if Isabel had had autism or something, you just weren't allowed to go to that base because they don't have the resources to help with those kind of things. So like they're already split and just stretched so thin that the treatment isn't there. So like, how else is this going to be done? It's got to be done by people like Ray, you know, it's got to be, the movement has to begin grassroots level. hundred percent. And that's when he was talking, I was like, Oh, you're talking about re like completely changing the way it's done. And, you know, veterans, obviously, I think I think I said this on the podcast, I'm the only male in my family who didn't go into the service. So my father was in the Navy, worked on the Colin Powell at the, at the Pentagon. And then my stepfather was in the, in the Army. So I understand, like, it is such a huge sacrifice, but they do come out of it, especially if you were in war. It, it's just too much. And, you know, Ray was saying that he's lost, I think, like 23 people. Well, 30, 30 people, but he said mostly it was from base jumping and skydiving. But I suspect that some of that skydiving and base jumping was like chasing the adrenaline that he was lacking from being in a machine gunner in a sniper unit in desert storm. You know, like you can't go from that to regular life and just be like, this is fulfilling. Like it's the integration process that's the hardest part. So it's like, you know, I know he was mostly traumatized by the base jump, like the losses he had from the base jumping. And, but that was also to supplement something that was missing from his time in service. So 
it, it's all a domino effect. He also talked about his childhood trauma. His father, you know, pushed him so hard that he broke his leg. Like that to me is unforgivable. And the fact that he, you know, I don't know if I, if we said this to him, but the fact that he was able to take all of this and be brave enough to go to several ayahuasca ceremonies to deal with the overwhelming, crippling trauma that he underwent, that takes your own inner strength. And that's something, yeah, that's something we talked about off air. And I I wish I had just hit record like while he was talking about it, but it was, you know, the stigma and this idea, this divide between kind of the mental health and the more woo woo, if you will, community and the military very like told to suck it up side is that, you know, they're both in this, they're so divided in theory, but really there's so much that they can learn. He was talking about there's so much they can learn from each other. And I was just so, like you said, it's so proud of him because it's rare for even a regular person to seek help for something. So for somebody who's been through so much to try so hard, I mean, think about how many people give up, you know, at a certain point or they become homeless or they, you know, that is a huge issue with the homeless population is a lot of them are veterans. And that's why I love 180 Place because they have an entire section devoted to veterans and housing them and and rehabilitating them. And so this whole reintegrating back into society aspect, I think spans not just with ayahuasca, but also with everything else. And that's why I wanted to know, like, what are some other ways he thinks that people should be getting treatment if it's they're not at the level of needing, like, say this treatment, but Exactly. His Warriors Healing Network is just what a great, great thing he's doing. And it's just the you know, beginning, that, you know? It's just the beginning. Just about to say, it's just the beginning. And I mean, he's been through a lot of loss, but it's also such, it's such a story of hope and the power of true healing. Because it doesn't mean that you're never going to feel those emotions again and that you're never, that you're cured. Yeah. You know, I think we learned this the other day. There is no finish line. No, we're always working. You know, just like, okay, and happily ever after, which we discussed before. On- Disney fucked us up. Yeah, yeah. Disney, like, <laughs> our expectations are so bad. And I think it's, it. you know, you said it too off air that it's so crazy how many people we've had on. And we kind of, it's not like... It's from all walks of life, but ultimately it's like the same common thread of, you know, growing from your trauma and learning to see the, not the bright side. I think that's been overused, like the silver lining thing. It's more of a, you know, you grow from that to be a better person and seeing the benefit of everything else that has come from it. And seeing your life through a different lens, because I think that trauma forces you to see it, see things very negatively, to see things in a worst case scenario, fight or flight, you know, your nervous system is just, is screwed. So the healing is getting you back to baseline, but sometimes it's even more than that. It's being able to understand the growth and the beauty that a lot of people out there don't even get to see. Not that you should go out there and start inflicting trauma on yourself, but that to start seeing the, the beauty and and what you had to go through and how he was, you know, the gratitude for the time he had with the people he had and that feeling that he got. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, will you look at you just dropping the pearls of wisdom today? You know, it's this law of attraction planner I got. I really just, you know, like it's got lots of little words of affirmation. No, I just think it's we've it's been almost in a way I feel like beaten over our heads, but in the most gentle way possible that this is a journey and you have to always be working on yourself. And that means every day. And it's a lot of it is about living in gratitude, you know, thanking you can't imagine a day where you would thank the people who abused you. You would thank the the trauma that happened to you. But it's like that taught you resilience, that taught you how to look, you know, something so traumatic in the face and then overcome it on the other side. But it's still a labor of love and it's a love for yourself. Exactly. I mean, it's all about turning the page, guys. I don't know how many times and how many different ways we got to say this, but <laughs> hopefully <laughs> just turn the page on trauma. Yeah, but we, exactly. But, but we will link up all of the ways you can get in touch with Ray and help his cause because it's something that Laura and I are very, very passionate about. And I, I think next year, I can't do it this year, but I think next year I'm going to go do an ayahuasca. I think you and I should go do an ayahuasca ceremony and then talk about it on air. I think should that, definitely that, have that would be incredible. A videographer there for <laughs> not, yeah, maybe not do. during it because I don't want everybody to see all that, but you know, <laughs> the before and after the prior and the present, a Tyler Whitman <laughs> reference there. But yeah, I think that would definitely be eye opening. For sure. But like you said, it's not for the faint of heart. So we got to like really prepare ourselves. And this is like, it's a deep, like you have to do a deep cleanse. Deep before. cleanse. And, the, and it's two or three weeks prior. You have to change your diet. You have to abstain from sex. You have to. Masturbation um, too. Masturbation. You have to completely, you have to do this like prayer ritual. You have to do gratitude journal. Like it's a whole thing that you have to prepare to be able to receive the medicine. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people out there that have had bad experiences, we're not doing that. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) They were not prepared to receive. Exactly. Well, Ray, thank you so much for coming on the program today. We really, really enjoyed having you. And thank you for being so brave and vulnerable and sharing your story and continuing to help people through your own knowledge of ayahuasca and your own uh, battle with PTSD. Yes. And everybody... Go check out the website, donate if you can, any amount helps. And those events are on the 5th and 6th of May and my peeps in Charleston, I'll have all of that up on show notes, on social media, everything. So be on the lookout. But for now, I do want to ask you before we leave, would you rather speak every language fluently or play every instrument possible? I think I would like to speak every language. Right. I think it, I think going to another country and being able to understand what they're saying and them have no clue. <laughs> and then talking to them in their language and being like, or just you could learn from other cultures so quickly. There wouldn't be that language barrier. Yeah. I mean, I certainly would understand a lot more of what's going on in my own household, considering how much Leia watches K-dramas, I like which for everybody out there is Korean dramas and they have swept the world and specifically BTS as a band. And I have no idea what they're saying, but I know the songs are in my head at all times. And so that would be very helpful. But I agree with you. <laughs> I would like to also go same, out. Same and, for you. Yeah, definitely the same. I think that I could find enough people to play instruments around me to satisfy that desire, but you can't get a translator for every 
place you go. I do love that Ray was like, I'm a metalhead, so I would love to play the instruments and get up on the stage with yeah. them. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just like, are you going to do them all at the same time? Like, that exactly. would be pretty crazy. <laughs> exactly. I like that. And and Ray's just, he's just a cool guy. I'm excited for everything that's going on with that. So again, thank you, Ray. Yes, thank you. And, and thank always, you, Todd. always glorious seeing you. Yes, until next time. Thank you.